0: Daniel 5, 1-31 Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that they had been "'Taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. "'And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. "'They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, "'of bronze, iron, wood and stone. "'Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged "'and began writing opposite the lampstand "'on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. "'And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing.' The king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, "'Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple, and have a necklace of gold around his neck, and have authority as a third ruler in the kingdom.'" Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then the king, Belshazzar, was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall. Because of the words of the king and his nobles, the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you, or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whose spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because of an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams. Explanation of enigmas and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you and that illumination, insights, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you're able to read the inscription and to make its interpretation known to me, You will be clothed with purple, and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as a third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself, or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king, and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished he killed, and whomever he wished he spared alive, and whomever he wished he elevated, and whomever he wished he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of the beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But the God in whose hand you are your life breath and all your ways, you have not glorified, Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upsharin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Peres, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes, and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed David with purple, and put a necklace of gold around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him. And he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of sixty-two. The word of the Lord. In 1909, White Star Lines contracted shipbuilders Harland and Wolf to build what was at the time the largest, most luxurious ship the world had ever seen. With 40 years' experience building ships, Harland and Wolf set out to build the unsinkable colossus commonly known as the Titanic. At 882 and a half feet long, Titanic was viewed as too large for even the worst storms to sink. With her massive hull of one inch thick steel and 16 watertight compartments, Titanic could withstand a direct impact from another vessel and still stay afloat if even two or three watertight compartments were compromised at the same time. The massive ship had room for 64 lifeboats. But in a decision driven by the hubris of White Star lines, she was only outfitted with 20 lifeboats. The thinking was that the Titanic would never need lifeboats. But just in case she was on scene of another smaller boat who needed help, then she would have at least some lifeboats to give assistance, to lend a hand. And so on April 10th, 1912, after selling out of its most expensive staterooms to some of the world's wealthiest people, the Titanic got underway on its maiden voyage from Southampton, England, to New York. And they were going to go via the North Atlantic, right during the annual iceberg season. If it wasn't such a tragedy and a true story, you could say the writing was on the wall. If this were a film or a novel or a short morality tale, you could scarcely set up a scenario in which so much pride, which was met with so much banal humiliation, leading to colossal failure and ruin. As it happens, a chain of mistakes and oversights based on overconfidence led to a scenario in which the Titanic scraped an iceberg on its starboard side, leaving a 300-foot gash below the waterline. Uncontrollable flooding happened, and and it compromised five watertight compartments. People began to lower the lifeboats. Of the 20 lifeboats that were on board, most were filled only to partial capacity. Many of the people still failed to believe that the Titanic could even sink, and so they, they kept eating and drinking and dancing. The writing was on the wall, but pride and overconfidence had clouded the people's judgment. In two hours and 40 minutes, the supposedly invincible Titanic was sunk, and an estimated 1,500 people lost their lives. Today, we're going to explore the biblical story from which the phrase, the writing on the wall, comes from. It's a story of warning about pride and judgment, but it's also surprisingly full of hope and grace. The story starts with an introduction. Belshazzar, the king, had a great feast for thousands of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Now, if you've been following this sermon series for the past few weeks, you might well be asking, who's this guy, Belshazzar? And what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king in the last four chapters? And why do all these guys have names that have so many Zs in them? Are they related to Shazam? Well, at least one of these is a good question. And no, I don't know if he's related to Shazam or not. But what we do know is that there was no king of Babylon named Belshazzar. So what's going on? As it turns out, lots has gone on since Nebuchadnezzar, the king in Daniel chapters 1 through 4, died. He died peacefully and in power at the height of his power in the year 562 BC. And after that 43-year stable reign by one king, Babylon got complicated. Amel-Marduk, Nebuchadnezzar's son, rose to power when his father died. But his reign only lasted two years before his brother-in-law, Negrilassar, took the throne. Four years later, another son of Nebuchadnezzar, Labashi-Marduk, ruled for a mere two to three months before Nabonidus took the throne and ruled Babylon, until its fall to the Persians in 539 B.C. So during this timeline of Daniel chapter 5, the king of Babylon was Nabonidus. And this is where things get interesting. See, Nabonidus was a devotee of the moon god Sin, whose priesthood and cult were located in the city of Haran. Nabonidus didn't really prefer to spend much time in Babylon. That was the capital city but he liked being in haran and he liked fighting wars out on the edges of babylon because the persians that powerhouse was on the rise and so nabonidus's time was occupied and so king nabonidus anointed his son belshazzar as co-king co-regent and he positioned his son in babylon to rule the day-to-day goings-on of that capital city now that's the historical background But as we will see, there is a literary connection that the author of Daniel wants us to make. See, With Nebuchadnezzar's pride, fall, and repentance fresh in our minds from chapters 1 through 4, we're now introduced to a new foil, Belshazzar. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar makes a great statue that served as an idol to his own greatness and to his own sovereignty over the land. And here, in Daniel 5, Belshazzar, literally in Aramaic, makes a great feast. Like Nebuchadnezzar, who puts himself in the place of God, so Belshazzar calls for the golden goblets and the holy vessels that were taken from Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem and then stored in Marduk's temple in Babylon. Now, the reader and you and I know that the only reason Yahweh's people are in exile in Babylon is because God willed it. They had rebelled against him over and over again, and so God was willing to work through Babylon to bring justice on their evil. Nebuchadnezzar came to understand this truth and to understand that Yahweh was indeed sovereign over the whole world. But Belshazzar hasn't learned that lesson from his predecessors, and he brazenly and foolishly uses the vessels of Yahweh to party with his nobles. But even worse, He uses the wine-filled vessels of God to offer praises to the false gods of Babylon. Back in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is turned into a beast by God, just as his arrogant claim to sovereign lordship left his lips. But here in Daniel 5, Belshazzar has barely got his cup lifted up to praise the Babylonian pantheon when all of a sudden the fingers of a man's hand emerge and begin writing on the wall opposite the lampstand. Artists over the ages have tried to depict this scene for what comes up in my mind over and over again as Thing from the Adams Family. Whatever this hand looked like, the effect was such that the text describes physiological and psychological effects on Belshazzar. The tipsy king in his rosy cheeks flushed with wine they turn white, and his mind is troubled, and his knees are knocking. And this this one is all for all you middle school boys out there, or those who love some good potty talk humor. Hebrew, Hebrew and Aramaic are very earthy languages, and in their original form they just come right out and say some pretty graphic things. And that has troubled prudish Bible translators who think it's important for some reason to shield our eyes from being influenced. But Old Testament scholar Ian Proven points out that when most English translations say that his hip joint went slack, that's in verse 6, it literally says that the knots in his loins went slack. So I'll let you fill in the blanks, but the text literally implies that, that this disembodied hand scared the intestinal fortitude out of Belshazzar. Again, this is a connection with the chapters involving Nebuchadnezzar, when Belshazzar demands that the conjurers, Chaldeans, the diviners, they be brought to him. Whomever can interpret the writing on the wall will be dressed in royal purple and get some gold chains and be placed in a position of power. Well, we've been in Daniel long enough to know what happens next. Once again, the diviners, the Chaldeans, the conjurers, the collective wisdom of Babylon cannot seem to interpret the dream or read the vision or, in this sense, read the crazy handwriting on the wall. So the king is now really freaked out until someone new enters the scene. The text says that the queen entered the room. But we know from earlier in the chapter that Belshazzar is there partying and drinking with his nobles and his wives and his concubines. So who is this queen who had not been at the party? Well, most scholars believe that she was the queen mother. Either Nebuchadnezzar's wife, Nechrisis, or Nabonidus's wife, who would be Belshazzar's own mother. Either way, the role of the queen mother in ancient Near Eastern royal culture was highly respected, and her opinions would be taken with reverence. The Queen Mother has perspective and experience. She's seen leaders come and go, and she sees this brash young ruler in trouble and reminds him him of an asset that he'd apparently hidden away and marginalized. And that asset is Daniel. The Queen Mother says of Daniel that he has knowledge and insight He can interpret dreams, he has explanation of enigmas, and he can solve difficult problems. Literally, in Aramaic, he is skilled at loosening knots. That's the same language used for Belshazzar's knotted intestines being loosened. So Daniel was Nebuchadnezzar's gift from God. It was Daniel who was able to reveal to the king what God was up to so that Nebuchadnezzar could repent and change his ways to both save himself and to save his people. Now, we know from history that Nebuchadnezzar was not Belshazzar's father, and yet in this passage, the two are linked together. The reference to Nebuchadnezzar being Belshazzar's father is likely a way of saying that he was the father of the empire. After all, the golden age of Neo-Babylon happened under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. So by calling Nebuchadnezzar his father, Belshazzar was aligning himself with one of the most beloved leaders in Babylonian history. Belshazzar summons Daniel, who's now in his early 80s, and insults Daniel right in front of his guests. Are you that Daniel who's one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? But still, he offers Daniel all the same rewards as the other people, the purple robe and the gold chains and all the power, if he can interpret the writing. Well, Daniel has kind of had it with his punk, okay? He says, keep your gifts for yourself or give them to somebody else. I'll read the inscription by the power of my God, who is the same God who gave your father Nebuchadnezzar his sovereignty over Babylon. Daniel goes on to remind Belshazzar of how God humbled Nebuchadnezzar and how God is truly in control of all the world powers. And in verse 22, we come to find out that Belshazzar already knew all of this stuff. He knew all about God's history with Nebuchadnezzar, and he knew all about the chances that God had given the king and how Nebuchadnezzar had come to humble himself. But as it turns out, Belshazzar knew all of this and still refused to humble himself, and so Daniel tells him the interpretation. Mine, mine, tekel, upsharin. These Aramaic words refer to weights that could literally, literally be translated as terms of money. So in Hebrew, it would be mina, shekel, and half shekel. Okay, but the driving force behind them is something more like numbered, weighed. And divided. In other words, Belshazzar and Babylon have been judged insufficient and their course has run. It's come to its end. As the chapter ends, Daniel's position is exalted and he's raised up while Belshazzar dies and Babylon falls to the Medo-Persian Empire. So how is this story Supposed to be an encouragement to the exiles and good news to the Babylonian audience and for us. Well, I want to close with these three things, these three thoughts. First of all, the story tells the truth. It tells the truth that God is real and that he is sovereign over us. It tells the truth that God has standards and that he holds people accountable to those standards. It tells the truth that judgment is real. God has shown himself extremely gracious to Nebuchadnezzar and to the Babylonians. He's gone above and beyond to provide chances to a people who had not previously known him. But make no mistake, judgment is what they deserve, and it is God's prerogative to bring about judgment. Belshazzar had learned nothing from the grace of God shown to his ancestors, and Belshazzar's sacrilege and pride will bring himself down and bring down the nation around him. Yahweh is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, but he will not endure re- destructive regimes forever. And so, God tells the truth about judgment. But this leads to point number two. Judgment on the wicked is a grace for the righteous. Righteous. What makes worldly power particularly repugnant to Yahweh is that worldly power dehumanizes and degrades people made in God's image. So in the story, God isn't judging Belshazzar and Babylon because of petty jealousy in profaning some golden dishes from the temple. He's judging because in denying Yahweh's sovereignty and choosing his own religion and policies, Belshazzar is destroying people's lives. In Amy Orr Ewing's book, Where is God in the Suffering?, she writes about Grenfell Tower in London. You may recall this tragedy, but Grenfell Tower was a 1970s-era housing project. And over the years, the property around the tower was bought up and turned into high-end condos and expensive flats. So to appease the wealthy neighbors, Grenfell Tower received an upgrade to make the exterior of the building look more appealing to the eye. But the cladding that was stuck to the outside of the building was extremely flammable. Engineers knew this, but the powers that be overlooked the safety concerns because it was cheap and because it made the building look better. And then on June 14th, 2017, a simple electrical fire that started in one of the apartments began a chain of events that would see most of the building go up in flames in minutes, killing 72 residents. Amy Orr Ewing's husband is a pastor, and he led a, a, a service of grieving and lament in the streets the Sunday following this tragedy. Most of the thousand people that showed up in the streets were not followers of Jesus. Or Ewing records uh, the description of this event. And she said that her husband was reading from Psalm 147. And it, when he read verse 3, which says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. She says that there was rapt silence as people huddled together, trying to take in what had happened, and perhaps wondering if there really was such a God as that. So there's silence in the streets until he gets to verse 6, which reads, The Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. And when he read those words, the Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. The crowd spontaneously erupted into clapping and shouting. And Amy, Or Ewing continues in her book, and she writes, The instinctual grief and anger of a community found an outlet in celebrating the words of a Hebrew poet from around 2,500 years ago. The wicked... Will be cast to the ground. That God is a God of justice, is good news to the ears and to the hearts of the oppressed. It is a grace that leaders and tyrants be warned you will reap what you sow. Look at the writing on the wall. But this leads me to my third point the line between righteous and wicked, oppressed and oppressor, is rarely black and white. And even if you are a follower of Jesus, we live in conflict and tension with parts of our hearts and behaviors supporting the way of Jesus and other parts supporting the behaviors and the ways of the world. If any of us were to be put on the scale, so to speak, we, I fear, would be found wanting. The writing is on the wall for all people. But this passage in Daniel 5 isn't just a morality tale. The application of Daniel 5 is not, well, you'd better do better. You'd better figure out how to be a better person. The application is to confess our mixed allegiances and our motives and to ask the Lord for forgiveness and for help. Jesus, have mercy on me, the sinner. Holy Spirit, give me the heart and mind of Jesus. Reorder my affections. Thanks be to God that because we have been found wanting, Jesus came to tip the scales toward life. I believe the writing is on the wall, and it says, Repent and trust in Jesus. It says, Found wanting but forgiven. It says, Paid in full by Jesus. It says, Loved by God. The writing on the wall says, in Christ, you are a new creation.